welcome to the ACOP Student Podcast, a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. Hello, and welcome to the ACOP Podcast, DO.FM. I'm Yanchi Tran, an LMS3 from an NYTCOM at A-State University and a member from the Public Relations Committee for the Student National ACOFP team. Today, I am joined by Dr. Ronald Only. Dr. Only grew up outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he attended the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey and graduated in 1998. He completed his family medicine residency at Kennedy Health System in New Jersey in 2001. Afterwards, he moved to Austin, Texas shortly after graduation, where he practiced family medicine and eventually opened his own clinic in 2003. In 2009, he also became board certified in addiction medicine and began treating patients suffering from substance use disorders. He continues to treat patients in Texas, but currently lives in Arkansas, where he teaches addiction medicine at NYT College of Osteopathic Medicine and works at Arcare, where they have an aggressive opiate addiction program. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Only. Thank you. All right. So first question, since this is a family medicine podcast, I have a question to ask you first. How did you decide on family medicine? Hmm. Well, that's kind of... (laughs) Let me take you back to medicine in general. Uh, <clears throat> well, I was, I was actually an engineer. I was an electrical engineer. And I did that for 10 years before, even, before I decided to go back for medical school. So um, and there, it's kind of a long way into medicine, but I knew I wanted to do something else other than engineering. I just didn't know what it was. It took me 10 years to figure it out. <laughs> wow. So... Uh, but anyway, I started medical school, and I, when I started medical school, I knew I was going to go for family medicine, mainly because I had such a good family medicine doctor growing up, and he was also a DO. Mm-hmm. So there was, no, there was no question about what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go, mm-hmm. you know? I, I, it was all osteopathic medical thinking for me. So that's pretty much what happened. I mean, I considered other careers along the way. Like I considered uh, psychiatry and I considered OBGYN. And eventually I realized that both of those are involved, heavily involved in family medicine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was like, oh, I can have the best of all worlds if I just continue on my path for family medicine. Okay. And Mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. There's a variety in what you can do in practicing in family medicine. Yes. So why addiction medicine? Well, the addiction medicine really stemmed from how I grew up. Okay. Um, like I said, I, I grew up outside of Philadelphia on the Jersey side, which is right across the, the Ben Franklin Bridge. And so we always identify with Philadelphia. The town I grew up in is called Williamstown, New Jersey. Williamstown, New Jersey, if you look it up on Wikipedia, you'll see that the opioid overdose rate in Williamstown, New Jersey is 25 times the national average. That's where I grew up. Mm-hmm. So when I learned about addiction medicine, there was really no question for me. I was like, oh, man, I want to learn about this. I want to do this because I grew up around so much addiction. It was literally everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I have friends from high school who are no longer with us because of addiction. Mm-hmm. I have family members who are no longer with us because of addiction. I mean, teachers. 
everything, you know, every, really every discipline um, that I grew up with, you know, I, there's somebody that I know in that discipline who got hung up on drugs. So that's really how I, how I wound up in, in uh, addiction medicine. Okay. Did mm -hmm. you decide that early on during med school, residency? In medical school, I had an hour of addiction medicine. <laughs> oh, okay. Helpful. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> but I didn't even know it existed. And I was just locked in from that one hour. I was like, I, I need to learn more about this. Mm -hmm. um, when I started practicing family medicine, I kind of, I pushed it to the side and started practicing in family medicine, started my practice and everything. And eventually, a drug representative from a Suboxone company came into my office and he gave me a spiel about Suboxone and he really wasn't confident. I could tell he wasn't very confident. I mean, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he's talking about, but he didn't really think that I was going to jump on board, mm -hmm. you know? And after he got done, I was like, okay, yeah, I want to do it. He's like, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yes, yes. Where do I sign? You know? <laughs> so um, that's pretty much what happened. And thank God for him because he was so so dedicated well he wasn't he was a recovering addict himself okay okay so he knew all about and it was opiates for him mm -hmm. and he knew all about opiate addiction and 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 how it captured people's lives and completely ruled their lives mm -hmm. and so he gave me a lot of insight mm -hmm. and uh he also was was very helpful in guiding me through the maze i mean i got wavered through him and his company, you know, I took the test and everything, got wavered so I could prescribe Suboxone, which they don't do anymore, by the way. But um, then he also told me that I could get board certified, and he told me how to go about doing it. So if it weren't for him, um, I probably wouldn't be here right now. Yeah. Okay. But that's pretty much how I got into addiction medicine. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. It's a really nice story, actually. <laughs> So can you walk me through a day in your life right now, such as how many patients you see per day and what's a typical visit entail? Okay, well, I'd say I'd see, I see probably anywhere from 12 to 20 patients a day on the average. Um, and it grows, but that's usually yeah, on the average, it depends. Well, it depends on what practice do. That's true. I mean, because here in Arkansas, it's like twelve to twenty. Okay. Um, in Texas, I see the patients during the weeknights online. I usually see like four a night, uh, four to five. So three nights a week. So that's twelve. And then on Saturdays, I usually see at least ten. You work on Saturdays, too. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Dedication right there. <laughs> so, so that's pretty much how it goes. I mean, the schedule, it's not, it's hard for me to see more than 20 a day. Okay. It's very tiring because I, I will, I must admit these patients, um, I don't want to say it negatively, but they, they do take, kind of take your energy, you know, so it's hard to see a lot of them at one time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. How long would you spend with one patient? 
usually no longer than 15 minutes. Okay. Now, in the beginning, when I was learning, just learning about addiction medicine, oh my gosh. I had a, I would do family medicine during the day. It's kind of a long story here. I sold, I eventually sold my practice, my family medicine practice to the hospital. Mm -hmm. But I was afraid that I didn't, I didn't want to include my addiction patients with that because I didn't want the hospital to tell me how to treat them. So I kind of pulled them out and set up another practice just for addiction medicine. That's when I realized how many addiction, addiction patients that I had. Mm -hmm. When I first started, it was, you know, as I was learning about, I would see my family medicine patients for the hospital in the daytime, and then at nights I would see the addiction patients. Well, some nights, I mean, I usually started at 6.30. Some nights I wouldn't get out until like 1 a.m. And just because I was learning everything I could about addiction, okay? So I might spend like 45 minutes or even an hour with a patient but I was just learning. And I was learning all I could about the patients and the patients were very talkative and they, they were very interested in diver, divulging their information. Now, you know, I, I understand it. I feel like I do know what I'm doing, although there's a surprise around every corner. Yep. <laughs> but um, I can usually do it within 15 minutes now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's pretty good, actually. <laughs> 15 <laughs> minutes is pretty good. <laughs> That's what we hear. Expected to do as students. <laughs> okay, so when you first started as an addiction medicine specialist, what were the challenges that you had that you encountered and overcame? Timing was one that yes. you mentioned before. Timing was absolutely a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> another challenge for me was keeping myself out of it. What do you mean by that? Meaning it's easy to get attached to any patient. These patients are particularly easy to get attached to because um, I have to admit, they're very manipulative, mm -hmm. okay? And um, their lives a lot of times are in tatters because of the addiction. So, but you, you know, I had to focus on treating the addiction not getting hung up in the patient's life, focus on the addiction. So in the beginning, those things were probably the hardest things about the treatment Okay. for me. Okay, mm -hmm. all right. Is it difficult to treat patients here in Arkansas and in Austin, Texas at the same time? I haven't really found it that difficult. Um, well, you know, there are differences between the two. What are the differences? Um, yes. Uh, here in Arkansas, the majority of patients I see at our care are like medic Medicaid, um, low income, those types of patients. And there is a different focus with them. Uh, they're, they're not, some of them are not really interested in getting better. They just want to get through, get past withdrawal. They don't want to go into withdrawal about anything. And so it takes a while to get them really focused on their own treatment and their own their own uh, improvement. Uh, wherein in Texas, my practice is self-pay. So those patients, they come in, they want to get better, you know? So that's already established. And then it's just a challenge, you know, just getting them to think properly 
in order to get over the addiction. Okay. Okay. If your patient stopped taking the medication you prescribed, what would happen? Well, it's happened several times. Uh, you know, patient. One thing about it is that uh, I use use buprenorphine, which is an ingredient in Suboxone, and um, they get on the medication and they no longer crave uh, the opiates, and they get better. They feel that they're better than they are. You know, uh, they just continue to uh, use the medicine and become more and more confident about themselves. And sometimes they actually feel like they don't need the medicine anymore because they're doing fine, okay? They stop using the medication. Of course, they go into withdrawal at that point. And if I'm lucky, they come back to the practice and say, oh, you know, I made this mistake. I need, you know, the medication. Or if I'm unlucky, they go into the streets and they find some opiates, okay? So, but the bottom line is what happens to them when they stop taking the medicine is they go into withdrawal, which is why we have counseling services and why counseling is so important to modify the behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To supplement their actual right. treatment. Right. Okay. Um, have you had any patients die of an overdose? Yes, I have. I think, I, I think I'm pretty lucky. I mean, I've been doing this for... I haven't counted the years, but over 15 years. And um, in that time, I've only had one patient that I know of in my treatment who died of an overdose. And he was a new patient. I'd only seen him twice. And so I was getting to know him. He was getting to know me. When they found his body, he had just about every drug that I could think of in his body. You know, who knows, I, you know, I don't know if he was trying to kill himself or what, but um, I didn't know him well, you know. Um, I've had other patients, well, one other patient who died, well, he was a patient of mine years ago, and his best friend also came into my practice as well, and they were getting treated together. He was doing fine, but he was always questioning his lifestyle. And he really missed the chase. I knew he missed the chase. You know, am I going to be able to find these drugs? You know, am I going to be able to pay for these drugs? You know, and that was always in his mind where in the Suboxone, he didn't have to worry about that, but he enjoyed that chase. Eventually, he dropped out of the program. He would not come back. His best friend would talk to him all the time. He was not coming back. Um, his best friend is still in the program. And he eventually stayed away, you know, he started staying away from him because he was tempting to him, to, you know. So, but he would, every now and again, he would run into him and he'd tell me, you know, I saw, I saw Lynn and, you know, he's not doing well. Um, I would always try to reach out to Lynn and say, well, if you see him again, tell him I'd love to see him. I'd love for him to come back to the office. And he would tell him. And I wouldn't see him. And every time he saw Lynn, he said he was thinner and he looked worse than he did the time before. Um, and he had been going from my practice probably about hmm, six, seven years. And just this year, about three months ago, 
I found out that he had he had passed from an overdose, unfortunately. But he wasn't, like I said, he wasn't in my treatment at the time. Um, but those are the only cases I know of. And I figure that's pretty good. 15 years experience, you know, treating, treating patients, I figure I'm not doing too bad. The stats are <laughs> pretty good for you. <laughs> okay, well, it is very heartbreaking to hear people mm -hmm. that you have tried to help and they refused it in some way or form and right. they made their own choices. Yes, engagement is so important and that's what I focus on all the time. My first visit is engagement. And usually when the patient, once the patient experiences the medication and realizes they don't have to crave anymore, they don't, they can live a normal life, they can think normally, they're not high, you know, usually it's easy after that. But sometimes, you know, people like to party and that's just unfortunate. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. Um, do you have any dangerous patients? Well, I've had one. Um, this is years ago. This young lady, she was kind of skeptical from the beginning. And I treated her like as I would any patient who walks into my office. And I think I probably, she's probably saw me maybe six months before I discovered that she was actually selling the medication I was giving her, I was giving her Suboxone, she was selling it on the streets. She came into my office <clears throat> for a visit and I confronted her about it. And I had, you know, solid evidence that she was selling the medication. And she got up and she cursed me out. And then top of her lungs, she cursed out the whole office, everybody in the office and everything. She walks out the front door. I followed her to the front door. And once she closed that front door, I told my receptionist, I said, lock the door. I don't know why, I don't know what made me, mm -hmm. but I was just, I don't know what she's gonna do from this point. So my receptionist got up and locked the door and I was watching her out of the window. She went to her car and her boyfriend was driving. He was waiting in the car. I saw her get in the car. I saw both of them get out of the car. Came back to the to the door and she couldn't get in. So then she starts banging on the door, cursing and all kinds of stuff. And eventually she kicked the window near the door. Um, but she didn't come in. She just kicked it, it broke, and then they walked, they walked away, went back to the truck. Do they have any weapons at the time? I don't know. Okay. I have no idea, which is this this is this is all why I was so I was concerned, you know? Just the way she was acting. And that's why I said lock that door. Mm -hmm. You know, thank God she didn't come any further. Um, eventually, you know, I mean I called the police, told them, you know, and she wound up getting arrested and she's probably still in jail because she was doing a lot of stuff. And um, yeah. So she wasn't just selling my medicine. She was selling drugs. She was selling guns. She was all kinds of stuff. So, Okay. But that's the only, that's probably the worst experience I've had. Um, yeah, it's, 
other than that, it's, there haven't really been any dangerous situations that I've been involved with in the office. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you can probably say that like your spidey senses in a way kind of tingled and you're like, mm, let's probably have this door locked, <laughs> right? I don't know what it was. I think it was just the grace of God. And he was saying, <laughs> you know, protect yourself. I don't, I don't know, but I'm glad I did. Right. Yes. Hopefully all of us, us students have developed that sixth sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm glad that everyone at your clinic and yourself included are, were okay mm -hmm. from that experience. Yes. Um, can you tell me what income bracket do most of your patients come from? Okay. Well, like I said, here in Arkansas, it's generally lower income. Um, but at my Texas practice, I've, I can honestly say I've treated people who were a step away from homeless, and I've treated multimillionaires. That's a variety. Yes. That's a range. I've treated doctors, I've treated lawyers, I've treated police officers, I've treated teachers, I've treated cooks, I've pretty much any, I've treated students, pretty much, pretty much all walks of life, you know? So there's really no, no variation in I mean, there is much variation, rather, in uh, income brackets. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I've treated musicians that you know. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me that, you know, all of us were we grew up with this concept with the, the concept of a stereotype of what a yes. addict looked like, but right. in reality, it could just be any of us. Mm -hmm. who's pro who's working along with with us or who are taking care of our children yes it doesn't as a matter of fact when I first started when I first started my addiction practice um, I had a gentleman I remember one time coming into the office and at, at this at this particular office I had to walk through the waiting room to come in I was late okay <laughs> So I walk in and I see this guy in full military uniform sitting in the waiting room. I was like, oh man, that's, that's different, you know? So I went back to my office and I just figured, you know, he was probably there to maybe sell me something. You know, maybe he was a rep from the military or something. I didn't really give him much thought. And eventually he came back for an appointment. And I was like, Wow, I said, so he said, I said, so what are you here for? You know, what can I do for you? And he says, well, I'm an addict and I need help. I said, you're an addict? And he said, yes. And he stood up and he rolled up his sleeves and he had track marks on both arms. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you are an addict. And I, I started to treat him. Well, about a month later, I had an office full of uniformed military. Wow. Yes, it was just incredible. And I treated all of them. They had been, you know, obviously they had been in the Middle East, wound up getting hooked on heroin, and came into my office for treatment. And I eventually, this is a couple of years after that, no, about a year after that, I got a call from the military telling me to stop treating these these men 
because they were trying to start up a treatment program. And I told them, I'd treat anybody who comes into my office, you know, so I mean, I'm not going to stop. I mean, and they continued to come. And in fact, they continued to grow. And um, then about a year later, that same person from the military, she was a psychiatrist with the military, she called me and asked me, was I willing to come work for the military? As a civilian? In addiction, yeah, as oh, okay. a civilian, which was a great offer, but I was very content on my own, mm -hmm. you know, so I continued. So I'm saying all that just to say, it covers all walks of life, all walks of life. I've even had a minister come in for treatment. Wow. Yeah. It's, it doesn't surprise me anymore. Anybody who walks in, you know, I'm willing to treat. I just try to stay as open-minded as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To not judge. Right. To not right. judge. Um, my next question is, do you, have, do you feel you have helped any patients change their lives? Yes. <clears throat> I, I don't want to say, um, I don't want to say it's me. It's the process has helped many patients to change their lives. Mm -hmm. And when I say the process, meaning the medication, the counselors that I have, uh, the conversations that I personally had with the patients, um, all these things combined have changed many, many lives. And that's really the beauty of what I do. You know, because it's very encouraging for me just to go on and continue to do this because I see so many people improving. I mean, I've seen people who were homeless <laughs> who now have jobs better than mine. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've seen, I've witnessed those changes over and over and over again, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And would you say that's the most re rewarding part of your career? Yes. That is the most rewarding part. Okay. Seeing these lives improve and seeing these pe pe patients get better. And especially when they get off of the Suboxone, then it's just, it's it's completely uh, rewarding. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you did spend a lot of time talking about the negative aspects of your um practice in your career. So I want to ask you this, more of a fun question. What do you do with your free time for your own mental wellness and health? Hmm. Well, you know, I, I'm married. I have family. I have three, well, I'm a little biased, but I have three beautiful <laughs> children, well, adults now. My youngest just turned 22, and she will be graduating from uh, University of Texan, Texas Austin campus this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, you know, my free time is spent with my family and my very, very supportive wife um, who supported me all through med school and everything. Um, but I also, I don't know if you guys, well, you don't know this, but I'm a musician <laughs> and uh, I play the bass guitar. I have been playing that for, I'm not even gonna tell you how many years, <laughs> but a lot of years. <laughs> And uh, so I, I do spend a lot of my spare time doing that and just enjoying music, going to concerts, um, and uh, listening to music. Uh, I used to write. I, 
I, I don't I don't know why I don't do that anymore. Maybe I need to. <laughs> you should. It sounds to me that you should. <laughs> but but um, that's those are my main hobbies outside of outside of work. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. To counterbalance the right. work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, in the past, you have shared with your students about your individual patient success stories. Do you mind mm-hmm. sharing a story? Sure. I remember a year, oh man, it was a lot of years ago. It might have been, it's probably like 13 years ago. I had a, a young lady come into my office and she literally walked in with the shoes on her feet. Um, she was living in a hotel. She lost, she had no job. She hadn't worked in several months. Her husband had just gotten arrested and jailed for possession of heroin. She had not seen her children in over a year. She asked me, could I help her? And like I said before, I will treat anyone who walks into my office. So I said, yes, of course, this is how we do it. And started her on treatment. To be honest with you, I really didn't think I was going to see her again. What makes you think that? It's just her environment. There was no support anywhere. You know, it was just nothing for her, no reason that I could see for her to continue with the treatment in that situation. But she did. She continued with the treatment. She came back and I treated, you know, I continued to treat her and we had many, many, many conversations. And eventually she trying to think of what came first. She went back to college and while she was in school, she got married, remarried, because her husband was still in jail, unfortunately. Um, So she remarried. Um, Then she got her kids back. Then she graduated from college I know that because I was at her graduation ceremony. (laughs) (laughs) Then she went back for her master's degree. And she kept telling me, I just want to work for you. I just want to work for you. You know, she was doing all this in counseling. And so, you know, I I implored her. I was like, yeah, you can come work for me. Well, anyway, make a long story short, she is now my head counselor, you know, and she has been so wonderful for our practice because she has that lifelong experience, personal experience. And she is so helpful because nobody can come into my practice and pull the wool over her eyes. Because <laughs> she's been, she's been that there. person. Yeah, she's been there. Yeah. She understands it completely, yeah. wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say that is probably the best example I have of a, of a a good you know, story, a uh, true story about success in my practice. I have many, many success stories, but I think that is probably the most successful because she is a part of my practice now, mm-hmm. integral part. Yeah. Yes. And very, very helpful to many, many patients. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the patients love her too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, a random question. How do you keep yourself updated with the new and upcoming 
drug names and its iterations and treatment? Mm -hmm. um, well, mainly through, I go to conferences every year uh, in addiction medicine, through, mainly through a program called ASAM, which is the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And if there's any new drugs uh, involved, they, they come up at the conference. But to be honest with you, uh, most of the time I learn of these new drugs through my patients. <laughs> you know, they come in and they say, can you prescribe so and so? I'm like, what is this drug, you know? Yeah. So uh, a lot of times I learn through the patients and then I try to, you know, I try to do reading. Um, I have Medscape on my computer and I try to read, especially if it has to do with opiate uh, or any kind of addiction. Mm -hmm. I do try to read those articles. I treat, by the way, I treat not only opiate addiction, but I treat all addictions. Um, I treat methamphetamine addiction, which I'm doing a lot of out here. Yep. Um, uh, benzodiazepine addiction, uh, marijuana addiction. Uh, I treat all of those and pretty much anything else that might creep in. I have What I haven't done is I haven't done gambling addiction, which is an addiction. Um, I haven't done uh, like food or things like that, you know, that aren't aren't uh, medical. Well, they're medical, I'm sorry, but there's no medicines involved with the addiction. Uh, but pretty much any anything that, that, that's what I'm trained for. I'm trained in overall addiction, not just opiate addiction. So I treat all kinds of addictions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, since you are a faculty member here at NYTCOM, um, you probably have seen many students who are interested in addiction medicine or have rotated with you. Mm -hmm. What qualities do you think that students should have in order to work with a subset, with a specialized subset of patients like addicts? Yes. Well, I'd say mainly two qualities. One is patience. You have to be patient because these patients will improve at their own rates. You know, I mean, and you have to be willing to wait. <laughs> um, sometimes it takes longer than others, but you have to have the patience and the faith in humankind to trust that they will get better, they will improve. And when I say get better and improve, meaning stop being so dependent on the medicine as a drug and start repairing their own lives, okay? Um, so you mean stop depending on the treatment that you're giving them at that moment in time and then start moving on past that? Yes, okay. yes. I, I encourage my patients to look at the medication as just that. It's a medication. It's not, I mean, you can't get high off of it. You know, so don't play around like you're getting high and try to, you know, get to the point where you're in withdrawal and then take another hit. It's not like that. You know, it's the type of medicine that you take on a daily basis to maintain sobriety and ma maintain your mental function. So uh, I'd say the first, the first character is patience. The second thing that you need is compassion. These patients are just like you and I. There's nothing that anybody did 
that they individually did to cause them to become addicted to medication. And it's something that could happen to you or I if we're careless about our treatment. So you can't be judgmental. You have to really approach it as a physician treating a disorder. And as long as you keep those things in check, I think you'll be fine. And these patients are very, very perceptive. So if you're not coming from those point of view, if you're not compassionate and you're not patient, they will see right through you. You'll be like a piece of glass and they will use you or just discard, just not get involved in your treatment plan. So you have to be honest. That's the other quality, actually. It's three. It's <laughs> <The> three. <laughs> Honesty is another one. Um, yes, you have to be honest. And the patients will see, uh, trust me, they will see these things. Um, and be yourself. Be yourself. Let them know that you are fallible, that, okay. that you're not perfect. Okay. And that your life is a learning process just like theirs. I think those are the important, important characteristics. Mm -hmm. I think you brought up qualities that I think a lot, not, not a lot of us would think of, um, which is interesting. But hmm. that's, that's very helpful okay. for people who are interested in this, actually. <laughs> Good. Um, my next question is, how can students who are interested in addiction medicine pursue in this area? Well, the rules have changed. Um, <clears throat> when I was <clears throat> getting involved with addiction medicine, like I said, I had to get wavered in order to provide, uh, in order to prescribe Suboxone. <clears throat> you don't have to do that anymore. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, I think the wavership program was good because you had to take like an eight-hour class in order to get wavered and take a test in order to get wavered. That was good because that proved that you understood addiction before you started treating it. Now anybody can just write Suboxone. Mm -hmm. So now there's a lot of physicians who really don't know anything about addiction who are writing Suboxone as another drug. Um, personally, I don't really agree with that. I think there needs to be more training involved. Will more patients get treated? Yes and no. <laughs> they'll get treated but they they don't get the psychological treatment that is really necessary for addiction management mm -hmm. so um, I highly recommend that before you start using Suboxone to treat addiction that you understand addiction take some classes you can take CME classes in addiction medicine um, you can go to the ACM conferences that I mentioned. There's also the CCM. There's a lot of organizations, ACOM. There's a lot of organizations that focus on addiction. But I highly recommend going to a conference, you know, and and taking those classes before you start treating addiction. Mm -hmm. That's very sound advice. That's very sound advice. What final advice do you have for students pursuing family medicine and? Mm -hmm. Probably addiction medicine if they wanted to do that. Okay. I guess one, the one thing I've learned just in the treatment of medicine is to be human. 
and to not lose that that quality. Because and it's easy in medicine to lose that quality. I mean, you're seeing patients and you're tired, and you know there's more patients coming. You're like, oh, just get me out of here. It's just it's easy to get to the point where you're just going from patient to patient to patient to patient. But you want to remain human. Let your patients see that you're human. You know, I, I try to be as personal with my patients as I can. You know, so they they understand me as a person, as an individual, as one of them, pretty much. You know, not on this high level and they have to look up to me because when the relationship is like that they they won't divulge but when they feel on the same on the same par as me the information you get is just incredible so if I could say any one thing because everything else you really learn in medical school mm -hmm. but stay human that's my advice. Mm -hmm. That's really good advice that a lot of us can take, for sure. All right. Well, Dr. Only, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your invaluable experience as a family medicine physician and addiction medicine specialist. It's been a pleasure. Mine too. And thank you for our listeners. Be sure to check out future episodes of DO.FM Podcast. The ACO of P Student Podcast is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about ACO of P, please visit www.acofp.org. Looking for more resources on OMT? Visit ACO of P's OM Teaching at www.acofpomteaching.com and ask your institution if they subscribe so you can have access to over 150 OMT videos and support materials.